Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. If you don't have a, a handout, it'd be great if you had a handout. Um, I have handouts that are left back on the table back there. If people don't have handouts, if someone could hand them out, that'd be great. I think maybe most people have one, don't know. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you haven't already. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 will be in verses 12 to 16. Um, 17 is there for context, and uh, it's in the back, of your <laughs> the back of your handout for extra credit later, if you want. <clears throat> there was a train, this is many years ago, loaded with young folks returning from school. Uh, on, uh, it's a local train heading, heading, bringing the students home. And the train broke down. It had what's called a hot box, which apparently is when the wheels overheat and don't turn so well anymore. And so the train stopped and the workmen got off and worked on the wheels, the hot box, to get the train rolling again. And because the express train, uh, the limited, was due soon, a flagman was sent hiking up the tracks to... Uh, flag down the oncoming train so there'd be no accident. And because there did not appear to be any danger, people were chatting and laughing around the train. It would only be uh, a little while until the train was moving again. But suddenly, the whistle of the Limited was heard, and it came on, this heavy train, and smashed into the local train with horrible effect, and lives were lost. <clears throat> The engineer of the Limited, 
leapt from the train at the last moment to save his life. And as you might expect, he was later hauled into court to give an account for his uh, actions. And they said, did you see the flag man? And he said, yes, I did. Why didn't you stop? Well, he was waving a yellow flag. And so when I saw the yellow flag, I did what you should do. I, I slowed down. So, of course, the flag man is called in to give an account. And what flag did you wave? And he said, I waved a red flag. But the, the express train went by me like a shot. Are you sure it was a red flag? I'm sure it was a red flag. And so the flag man was told to produce his flag. And after some delay, he did so. And that's when the mystery was made clear. It had been a red flag. But it was weathered and old, and it looked kind of like a dirty yellow flag. <clears throat> you are supposed to be a red flag, warning the world clearly by proclaiming the gospel and living it out. But it's pretty easy to be a yellow flag, a soft warning with a life that does not display the truth of the gospel or sincere belief. Will those whom you should have warned say that they saw a red flag or a yellow flag? If you don't call sin, sin, and warn of judgment, you wave a yellow flag. Likewise, if you don't live a life that is surrendered to Christ, you also wave a yellow flag. Because your life also speaks. And as you know, actions speak louder than words. If you say with your mouth, Stop in your tracks and give your life to Jesus. But your life says, well, I didn't stop. I didn't surrender my life to Jesus. If your life only says, just slow down a little. Surrender on Sunday. Maybe go to seminary. Then all you're waving is a yellow flag. We must be red flags not yellow flags. Let's look at the text, verses 12 to, uh, we'll read through 17 in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we look at these words in our precious copies of your word, we pray that you would take them from the pages and bring them into our hearts. Please make us soft to the truth of your word. Um, you do not hold back the truth from us. Please help us to not hold back from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Your first point is just this, this thing labeled context on your handout. 
Um, it's kind of a, a narrative point. Paul was anxious for Corinth when Titus didn't show up, and so he left promising ministry in Troas. Uh, I include this so that the rest of the text makes more sense. Um, <clears throat> Paul's, Paul's drawing from his personal experience. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, hey, I arrived in Troas to preach the gospel, which makes sense. Troas was a strategic Roman colony, exactly the type of city that Paul might target. And he says, God opened a door for me, and which I would take to mean that he had fruitful ministry in Troas, that's why he has to say goodbye. He says he takes leave of them in verse 13. That's why in Acts chapter 20, when he goes back and preaches in Troas, there are Christians there. That's the moment where he preaches too long and the young boy falls out a window and Paul has to resurrect him. Uh, Mike, Mike asked me if I was going to cover verse 17. And I said, well, I'm afraid I'll go too long. And I'm also thinking I don't want anybody falling out of their pew. No injuries on Sunday. <clears throat> so God opened the door for Paul and Troas, and yet he's distressed. He's so distressed that he leaves because he can't find Titus. Now, why is that important? Well, Titus was his brother in Christ who had brought to Corinth the painful letter. Not 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, but more like Corinthians 1.5. We don't have it. But a painful letter that was sent to Corinth. And it seems like Titus was supposed to meet Paul in Troas. And so Paul is worried about the church in Corinth, but his brother Titus doesn't appear. Probably um, Titus was supposed to come on the last boat of the season. And when he doesn't show, Paul leaves Troas to go over land and, and, and uh, towards Macedonia and hopes to meet Titus going on the way. <clears throat> Now, this is honestly a little strange. Why does Paul leave an open door in Troas? He's making a point of it. He frequently stuck with ministry when it was difficult. You could persecute him, you could throw him in prison, and he would keep on serving in that city as long as he could. That was his job as an apostle. Yet he was also a shepherd, a pastor to fledgling churches like this church in Corinth. And their disregard for him as an apostle and their preference for morally bankrupt teachers was deeply concerning to him. He is distraught over his, 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 um, the people under his care in Corinth. In Corinth, um, many had come to view Paul as like an inferior leader. They got to know him well enough, they found out why they shouldn't respect him. A part of it was they said that he looks weak. Just look at his afflictions. And, and he was inappropriately bold for such a weak leader. To them, he just doesn't look like the kind of person who's worth listening to. In chapters 2 to 7 of 2 Corinthians, he explains why he must be so bold. And, and while he talks about that, he leaves us in suspense about his anxiety when he left Troas. <clears throat> and he turns and he reflects on his interminable deal, uh, ordeals as an ambassador of Christ. And that's what we have in verses 14 to 17. 
And he explains that it is his, his suffering as a slave of Christ, as a captive of Christ, that validates his gospel message. Let's move on to the first point, <clears throat> uh, which is point number one on your handout. To be effectively fragrant, be a captive of Christ. To be effectively pra- fragrant, be a captive of Christ. But thanks be to God, this is verse 14, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So for all Paul knows in this moment that he's describing and speaking from, Corinth has rejected him because he's a weak apostle and yet he takes himself in that, in that mental state of mind and he turns and he praises God because Christ has taken him captive and he is fully submitted to Christ and his life makes him effectively fragrant. Now to understand this, we need to understand what it means to be led in triumphal procession. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. It doesn't mean what many people think that it means, including myself at one point. The mighty Roman Empire became so powerful in part because it was this advanced civilization with excellent administrative mechanisms. It was founded originally, but then it diverted on uh, essentially some of the government principles that our country is founded upon. It had well-educated leaders. It had financial stability. It had good laws. It had an effective functioning justice system. They established peace within their borders. You've probably heard of the Pax Romana. And it's legitimate to look at Rome and recognize Rome for its political advances and its highly advanced engineering and its sculptures and its architecture and its government and all of those things. However, Rome, the empire, also grew because it was a brutal, bloodthirsty nation which violently conquered its neighbors and its enemies. When its generals returned from conquering neighbors and enemies, the whole city turned out to celebrate another victory. They turned out for a triumphal procession. Shops were emptied, homes were emptied, people built scaffolding. The whole city turns out to watch the triumphal procession, to celebrate, to feast. We have thunder over Louisville and we have Derby. They had triumphal processions. And in marches the general at the head of an army that he often gathered and built and trained himself and then led into battle in a foreign nation. These generals often became incredibly wealthy and powerful. Often they became a proconsul or an emperor. And as the general paraded through Rome with his entire army, all of his proud men come behind him. And they are an impressive sight, legions of warriors. And behind them come come all the spoils of war, the gold, the silver, the horses, the livestock, many of which would be sacrificed to the gods of Rome on that day for their victory. Also comes the king or the prince who has been uh, been captured. 
and his household and a large number of captives, many of whom would also be sacrificed on that day. You would expect the king of the prince to be sacrificed on that day. Many other of those captives would face a life of slavery. And so their faces were heavy with grief and the crowds jeered at and mocked them. And when Paul says that Christ leads us in triumphal procession, he was using a particular word that means to lead those captives in triumphal procession. And Paul's saying, I am a conquered captive. I'm a conquered captive. Now, Paul's a, a master of analogies, but that one throws some people for a loop. There are a lot of interpreters who say, no, 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 Paul can't mean that at all. He must mean he's a soldier in the general's army. And it's not just scholars. A lot of people read it that way. He must be talking about us following Christ as a soldier. However, in Corinth, they would have been just as shocked and they would not have been, not been able to misinterpret this sentence because they were native speakers of Greek. And so Paul is writing to a Ro the leading Roman city of Greece to praise God because he is a helpless, conquered captive in a life of slavery. And it's a little hard for us to have a modern parallel because America is a relatively well-behaved nation. We could go around conquering our enemies. We just don't do it very much. I'm, I'm happy for that. Um, maybe an economic comparison is helpful. Maybe it's like Paul saying, I'm a third world laborer serving the American people for a dollar a day, right? And the captives, the captives are proof of the magnitude of his victory. God is glorified because Paul is a captive. And when Christ builds his church, he is the real victor and the creator of peace. It's not about us. So... Vine Street, when you are sitting here shoulder to shoulder as slaves of Christ, it's not about you. You represent the victory of Christ. You are evidence of his victory and his conquest. Now, ironically, like we have tr trouble as Christians accepting this idea because we would like a slice of the glory, thank you very much. 
We have trouble viewing ourselves as captives, not soldiers. We have trouble being humble. Okay, that's first, second. Now here's third. This analogy helps make Paul's suffering make sense. The Corinthian culture, like the Roman culture, and I would say like the American culture, was fixated on comfortable living and power and success. They were. Look at America. Who do we pay attention to? Successful politicians. The, the actor who makes it big. The CEO who transforms an industry. We love people like Elon Musk walking around making rockets and building car companies from scratch and, and, and saying rambunctious things. We look at people like Bezos, a scrappy businessman starting Amazon, building a company, getting extraordinarily rich, and then buying other companies for fun, also building rockets. And look at him, Buzz Be now Bezos is, is buff, cruising around on yachts. He traded his wife in for a fancier model. The Corinthians, they expected, even in the church, leaders to march with God in victory like captains of the conquering general's force. They were not interested in the leader who got dragged through mud and thrown out of cities. So Paul's suffering, it, it, it bothers them. It rubs them the wrong way because he did look more like a captive of Christ than a conquering captain. But it was Paul's suffering that God used to plant churches and to guide the early church. And God used his suffering as evidence of the fact that he was a captive, calling others to become captives. And that should actually make us happy. The humbling of Paul and the call to be humble ourselves and be just simple captives of Christ should bring us joy because like Paul, we can thank God that he uses people like us in, among his church in, in the world. Now, the application point there is, when obeying Jesus brings difficulties your way, embrace them, because they prove that Jesus is your Lord. <clears throat> obeying Jesus can make sense of those difficulties you face. Being a captive of Christ makes sense of the suffering and the difficulty that comes your way. And if you are a captive of Christ... If you are his slave for life, you should not be surprised if you need to do some difficult things that are not comfortable, that don't look successful to the world. In fact, you can turn it around, and if you're not doing difficult things that are uncomfortable, that look like failures to the world, then you're missing out. You should focus your life on living your life to please Jesus. To be effectively fragrant be a captive of Christ. The next point is to be effectively fragrant, this is the back of your handout, you must reek to some and smell sweet to others. To be effectively fragrant, you must reek to some and smell sweet to others. I originally called this to stink properly, you will reek to some and bless others. And that's how you get the sermon title, stink, you need to stink. You should reek. People should find your odor obnoxious. Not your actual odor, but that's not good fellowship. Um, <clears throat> to, be 
To be effectively fragrant, you must reek to some and smell sweet to others. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. <clears throat> so, the first illustration Paul uses is that of being a captive slave, and the second one is that of fragrance. And as he expands on the idea of fragrance, I think it helps us understand what he's thinking of. It relates, again, to this triumphal procession. Um, when a Roman general comes into Rome, and this is the big party of the month or the year for the people of Rome, the many temples of Rome would be burning their incense. This is how they would have their influence beyond the, 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 the doors of the temple. They burned incense. The air was probably permeated with the smell of burning incense, also in worship of their gods. <clears throat> Paul says that God spreads the gospel everywhere through Paul, much as a fragrance spreads. So, he is, his life is, we're going to see, the aroma of Christ, Christ's aroma through him to God. This is what the worship looks like. And Paul's fragrance spreads the gospel everywhere. Fragrance does permeate the air. If you go to a friend's house and they have lit a Yankee candle anywhere in the building, when you walk in the door, you know. When you go to the mall, by the way, if there is a candle store in the mall, you also know when you get relatively close. Um, my, my, my daughter, Autumn, had one nurse who would use essential oils. And the nurses would trade off while my wife and I were still in bed. And I would wake up and I would smell that the new nurse was there. And we actually found it a little overpowering. So I approached her and I said, I don't, it's just, do you have a strong odor? It's not bad, but could you use a little less? And she goes, I don't understand. I just use essential oils. I just put a dab on, right? It was potent. <clears throat> Paul's suffering and his lifestyle and his decisions, all which of which directly resulted from his captivity to Christ, they were his potent aroma. That's the connection to being led in a triumphal procession. Paul's aroma is not merely his message, it is his life, his life of captivity. He doesn't have a glamorous, respectful, um, uh, success, respectable, successful life. He's not a two-star general in the army of God. He could claim such a respectable role. He is merely a captive of God, obeying his king. And that makes him more look more like a suffering captive than a triumphant captain. But this life of, of submission that he lives is his aroma. And if you and I are faithful, then people everywhere we go are going to be confronted by our aroma. Your aroma, your life is going to confront the people in your world both those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
Paul is explaining the effect of the fragrance. To some, it is a fragrance from death to death, which is to say, to some people, he smells like death. To some, Paul's aroma is repulsive. So they reject Paul and his message, and they choose to continue on the way to death. They see his submission to Christ, and they're like, I want nothing to do with that, and they choose death. To the other people, he is a fragrance from life to life. They find his aroma wonderful. They welcome his message. They see how his life displays the gospel. And so they come to life. My wife and I were talking about what kind of aromas like divide people. We thought of ethnic food. Um, we had one nurse in our house who loved the smell of Chinese cooking. My wife is Chinese. I love her cooking. It smells great. We had another nurse in our house, Pam, who hated it and told us so. I love Indian food. I can't eat as much of it as I used to, but it tastes great. However, if you look at apartment reviews, you can find out which apartments have a higher density of Indians because people will tell you what the hallway smells like. One Chinese dish is stinky tofu. Who has had stinky tofu or smelled it? Okay, it is something, it is something. But there are people who love it. If you're at a restaurant that serves stinky, stinky tofu and, and a table orders it, everybody knows. Uh, this is not ethnic food, but truffles, right? Actual real truffles. I have never had a freshly sliced truffle, but I was listening to a podcast with my kids and they said that truffles smells like stinky, stop, stinky socks, but in a good way, right? Probably a divisive odor. You should stink. You should stink terribly. And at the same time, that same stink should smell amazing to others. Because you are faithfully proclaiming the gospel and living it out. You look like a captive of Christ, and you smell like a captive of Christ. And if you don't stink to some people, then either your message isn't audible, so they don't know why on earth you're doing what you're doing, or there is no hint of sacrifice or captivity in your life. If someone comes to you, a friend comes to you and says, I, I'm a chef, but every single time you run into them, they smell like flowers, you would, would, wouldn't believe them. If someone says, oh, I work in an office downtown, but every single time you smell them, they smell like manure, you would think their claim smells like manure. Your life must agree with your testimony. You have to be a red flag, not a dirty yellow flag. Notice, I'm not saying be the annoying Christian who gets in people's faces. I'm saying stink. Have a life that is a potent aroma. <clears throat> And even if I clearly declare the call to repentance and submission to Christ, if I actually with my life preach a gospel of uh, 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 say this but do that, then I'm a yellow flag. I don't stink. Now, how should you respond to this? You don't respond to this by saying, okay, well, sounds pretty miserable. Sounds like what I'm supposed to do as a Christian is look suitably miserable, like a captive. 
But that, that's not actually the right response. Instead, you should ask what Christ's captives should do. What do you as a captive of Christ need to do to be a captive of Christ? And it's going to look really different from what it means for Paul. You are not an apostle. You are unlikely to be persecuted and thrown in jail or washed ashore on Malta. But your life is going to demonstrate your submission to Christ. So that people who know you up close and personal, which is where almost all of your impact is, they will be able to see that you are thoroughly submitted to Christ. A captive of Christ, he, he turns away from sin daily, repeatedly, forever. He is a slave of Christ who lives the inner details of his life in submission to Christ. And he uses his life to serve his church, his neighbors, his world. <clears throat> now, it's kind of difficult to summarize in, in, a, in a simple way exactly what that means. The, the, this summary that Paul has of being a captive of Christ is probably the best summary you can get. We each have different situations in life. And, and so it's difficult to give you a top ten list of things that you should really do to be a captive of Christ because some of them aren't going to actually apply to you the same way. And, and I'm going to miss things about some of you if I do that, right? I'm still going to give some examples. But my, my point is, is that the faithfulness of a busy mom of two or three or four is going to look very different from the faithfulness of a 20-year-old boy student. And very different from the faithfulness of an 80-year-old widow. These are, these are really different circumstances. And we all have different fleshly weaknesses, and we have different family backgrounds. We have parents who were wise or foolish or trained us well or poorly. We have different natural inclinations to self-discipline. We have different family situations, different life trials. But the interesting thing is that you are a captive, right? But you don't look like a captive the way a typical slave does, right? You all look like free people. We are remarkably autonomous slaves of Christ, right? And there's a reason for that. It's because we are remarkably autonomous slaves so that as we consciously and consistently and habitually and vigorously submit ourselves to Christ in each of our circumstances, he is glorified more. Because we are not free to just follow our fleshly desires. Jesus still wants, desires, and requires your obedience. <clears throat> but I still am going to talk about some examples. What does it mean to be a slave of Christ? It means it doesn't matter what the sin is. You don't tell your master, your king, well, I'm not going to deal with that sin. It means that when you talk about, when you look at your life in the nitty-gritty details and in your daily obedience to Christ, you serve him in any way you can and you want to grow more and more as a servant of Christ. 
We talk about things like finances, right? You've probably talked about finances and what it means to steward your finances to Jesus and the fact that your savings, your home, everything you own, your car, your ability to earn, all of this actually belongs to your master, not you. So you don't just go say, well, I carved out my 10%. I can do what I want with the rest. You use every single penny of it to, to, to coordinate a life that is uh, stable and productive and generous and used to its maximum to serve your king. And if you do that, then your financial decisions and your habits, especially of a church as a whole, are going to look like to a world a captive people who serve their king. How about your time? Here's just a broad category. If you're a slave to Christ, he owns every minute of your day. Now, he gives you a lot of freedom about how exactly you're going to use it. And you can do things like find rest, and, and you should. But what slave spends three hours on personal entertainment a day? You know, if we cut out the eight hours of sleep that a good steward should get, <laughs> I struggle there, um, <clears throat> And, 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 you, and then you say, well, what does two hours a day wasted on self-centered entertainment, <laughs> what does that amount to? Well, every, every decade, that's one and a quarter years, 15 months gone. In four decades, that's five years. Picture yourself standing before your Lord Jesus giving an account. Lord, I must, I must report that I took five years of the life you gave me to watch YouTube and TikTok and scroll Reddit. Or watch whatever I watched, right? And in the process, I distracted myself from serving you and distorted my desires and made a habit of lust. Because you are a slave of Christ, the moments of your days are his. And you won't delude yourself or mislead yourself with little lies about what you actually do with your day. We could talk about physical stewardship. I'm a guest preacher. I could say things like this, right? Your body is given to you by God, right? You'll eat healthy food. You'll get exercise. I have had to grow so much in this area. And you'd be right to say that, well, non-believers, they get exercise too. And, and in this culture, who cares? But the truth is that if you steward your, the, the body that God gave you, you are a slave of Christ. This body is, is, is given to you by your king to serve him. You're going to want to increase your useful years to him and avoid unnecessary medical care. And you're going to want to look like someone who, who stewards the physical life that they have in a way that pleases their king. And we could talk about how you steward your family or your friendships or your mind or your habits. And in each and every area, we should be surrendered to Christ. It does influence things like your big decisions. <clears throat> I'll give a personal example. Um, I, I left a research career to go into seminary. And I'm not saying that's what people are supposed to do. It's not like you're holier if you leave a, a normal job and go to seminary. But as a result of this, when, when our church did ministry with Chinese internationals, most of whom are in Louisville 
to work on their postdoc or their PhD or their, their doctors from China who are doing a research stint here so they can get a promotion when they go back to China. They would get to know me and they would be like, what? You were a research scientist, you published papers, you had a salary, you had a title, and, and you went to ministry? And they can't make sense of it. I had a Chinese friend out of my table a week and a half ago who was honestly bothered by me. And she's saying, doesn't it bother you that you're not making that kind of money? And by the grace of God, I can say, nope, doesn't bother me at all. I'm very thankful for God God has provided me. When I'm dead, I can't take any of that with me anyway. Who cares? I am just thankful that God uses me where I am. I do notice when the particular area I was in, which is language processing, has become in, in very short supply, and the salaries have gone up and up and up. But I honestly notice and I'm amused. It's like, well, that's hilarious, right? And God can use that. Again, I am not saying you need to leave your job and go into ministry. That's, that's really not the idea. The point is that in my particular circumstance, obedience to God meant making big decisions that the world can't explain any way besides, I guess he really believes what he believes. I have a stink. I want to look briefly at <coughs> excuse me, church conflict, because that's kind of the context that Paul is coming out of. Remember verses 12 to 13, he's worried about the church in Corinth. And, um, <clears throat> and, and he's, he, he, he is responding in part by saying how he is in that moment of deep concern about the church, just rejoicing in the fact that God uses him even in these difficult circumstances. But I think that we can connect a little bit between the, 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 what happens in, in church tension or church conflict, conflict and what... Paul is calling us to do. <clears throat> I'm sure that Paul's opponents were certain that they were right about some things. But the truth is that they failed to act in a loving way. Because they didn't have Paul's mentality of being a slave of Christ. Which is why Paul's calling them to live like slaves of Christ. A committed slave of Christ just doesn't have the time or the energy to end up with distorted priorities or, or gossip about people that they're commanded to love. <clears throat> you know, five men who are fighting in a foxhole shoulder to shoulder for the cause of Christ to share the gospel in the world, they're going to be able to tolerate disagreement. If they disagree about tactics or how to interpret the army training manual, they don't say, well, get out of my foxhole. Go find a different one. And, and there are irreconcilable differences that occur in churches um, uh, um, that, that, that require this sometimes. But there's an awful lot of dashing around between foxholes in churches in America. And it's because, Paul would say, we are not living like captives of Christ, sitting shoulder to shoulder in a common mission, which is to glorify Christ and serve him in this world. Sometimes it helps to look at it from the perspective of heaven. It's, it's easier to think about our role on earth when we think forward and think about one day when we are seated together in heaven. I said together. Yes, together. 
There's no division among believers up there. Not up there. I know that's wrong. No division among believers, the new heavens and the new earth. You are going to be seated by the brother or sister at the heavenly feast with whom you disagreed. And, and you'll both have an understanding of exactly how right or wrong whoever was. But will you also be repenting of your lack of love for that person? You're, of course, there in the abundant grace and forgiveness of Jesus and your brother or sister perfected, is perfectly capable of forgiving you. But, but that's what Paul's saying. Notice he doesn't say a ton in the book of 2 Corinthians about what the actual content of the disagreement is. It's mostly about the lack of love. That doesn't make sense for slaves of Christ. Now... <clears throat> All this talk about being a slave of Christ is an awfully tall order. In fact, it's frankly impossible without the Holy Spirit. Ain't going to happen. And it's not finished. You are not done and you will not be done. It is that all-encompassing. But if you are following Christ, you are going to make choices and cultivate a life that people will have to interpret as being a result of your obedience to Christ. Last point. Accept the enormity of your responsibility. This is the second, last, half, last piece of verse 16. Again, not touching on verse 17. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Accept the enormity of your responsibility. <clears throat> so Paul marvels at the burden of his ministry and the fact that it sorts, it sorts the people who hear him and see him into those who are headed to life and death. That's a big deal. People are going to see you, see you wag your flag, and they are going to choose death or choose life. That's a big deal. Paul um, arrives at Troas or Macedonia or Corinth, and he's, and he's preaching in the public square, and he's spending time with curious people in the homes of Corinth, and, and he's, he also spends time in churches that are composed of sheep and goats. And people respond to his words and to his aroma. And some think he stinks. He reeks of death. They hear his call, criticisms and his call to repentance. And they find the call to surrender to Jesus irritating or offensive. Others smell his aroma, and they smell forgiveness of sin, and it smells so good that they weep over their sin, and they rejoice that they too can be a captive of Christ. And Paul's complete surrender demonstrates surrender to Christ and God's triumphant work in our lives, and some live and some die. And that is your responsibility too. You are in Paul's situation. People live or die when they see you live for Christ. And some people are not going to like it. They're just going to reject it. They're going to reject you. It's part of the package. On September 21st, 1938, a hurricane of absolutely massive proportions hit Long Island, New York. <clears throat> the storm surge was 40 feet tall. And it, when it hit the coast, it registered on seismographs in Sitka, Alaska. People who were present had to drive at 50 miles an hour to escape the surge. Those that didn't, did not escape the surge. There was a striking story from that day. There was a man who happened to have ordered a barometer from a shop in New York. And it arrived on the morning 
of September 21st, 1938. And he opened the box and he took out a barometer and it was pegged. The needle is pegged below, I think the number is 29, where it says hurricanes and tornadoes. And he's like, well, that's great. This is broken. This can't be right. And he whacked it on the table and he shook it and, and it's still broken. And so he packaged up this, this new barometer and he drove off to the post office and mailed it back. And while he was gone, his house blew away. We do have the truth. And our life is going to make us the kind of aroma that our submission to Christ means that we look like we are pegged at hell and tornadoes. But we are also pegged at hope and salvation. Our lives are going to separate those who observe us into those headed to death and those headed to life. And brothers and sisters, the gospel is not clear today. It is not clear to most people who do not know Jesus. And it is essential that we communicate it clearly with our mouths and with our lives. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it is a strange thing to us that you call us to be strangers and sojourners in this world. To be ambassadors to this world who must offend this world with the truth that we speak and the willingness to submit to you and glorify you with our lives. Lord, we only can find the strength to do this through your work in our souls. And we pray, Lord, that you would do this good work in us. Take me captive. Help me to surrender to you, to find my joy and my satisfaction in surrendering each and every corner of my life to you to be the human being that you created me to be and now have created new in Christ to be. Lord, let us be, let Vine Street be a people so submitted to you that the world sees it and has to say, well, they definitely believe what they say they believe. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.